0: Alexandria, Virginia, talking to Lauren Francis Adams and Stuart Watson about their art installation, Centennial of the Everyday, at the Gadsby's Tavern Museum. As a contemporary art installation, Centennial of the Everyday is a bit difficult to describe, but I think we do our best to try to give you the essence of what you'll see when you visit. The installation shines light on the history of women, enslaved peoples, and other nameless citizens who likely circulated around Gadsby's Tavern during the late 18th century. To create this three-part installation, the artist conducted extensive research and created works in a variety of media, including furniture, stoneware, and textiles, which are inserted around other existing historical exhibits in the museum. For one piece of the exhibit, a particular provenance, they worked with individuals connected to the history of Gadsby's Tavern, either through genealogical or organizational structures. These people, Tracy Laughlin, Stephen Hammond, Lex Powers, Deanne Bryant, Char mccargo Ba. Laurie Sisson, and Joan Sureski each offered a piece of furniture to the artist to work on building a collaborative sculpture that represented their connection to the history represented at Gadsby's Tavern. While Gadsby's Tavern Museum serves as a historic site that has long been attached to other quote-unquote large figures of American history. Stuart and Lauren show how there are all sorts of nameless individuals that also contributed to the important events that happened in this space. Stuart and Lauren are colleagues at the Maryland Institute College of Arts or MICA. They are both individually recognized artists having received numerous fellowships and awards. We sat down to have this conversation at Stewart's Gallery Area 405, where she is the Executive Director, Curator, and Co-Founder. During our interview, you'll hear some working artists in the background, and we hope they don't distract you too much. But as this episode outlines, this is what the visual arts sounds like. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. So to begin, Centennial of the Everyday, could you just sort of describe to our listeners what it is and what the kind of concept your work is within what is this sort of, it's not a house museum, but it's a site museum, a historical site museum, how your work relates to what they had previously, what they normally do, for lack of a better phrase.
1: Centennial the Everyday is a site-specific temporary public art installation at this historic site museum. Um, We, Stuart and I have been working on this project for over a year. Uh, It's through the project is through the Alexandria Office of the Arts, and um, the specific event series is called Time and Place. And we, as two collaborative artists, were selected alongside another artist, Sheldon Scott to uh, make new contemporary artworks in relationship to the Gatsby's Tavern Museum in Old City, Alexandria. So we had several months to prepare for our installation and uh, the installation just opened up in May. It will be on view through September and it's an immersive site-specific installation that um, takes on the spaces within the museum as kind of backdrops for sculptures and other collaborative art objects that we've made. Um, Sheldon's work was a performance that premiered already and um, has a series of photographs and videos and other things like that. Um, So Centennial Every Day is a collaboration between Stuart and I, a collaboration between some of the subjects of the artwork who um, are incorporated into the sculptures and um, is a site-specific
0: installation in the museum. And what Stuart inspired you to begin this project?
2: Uh, I think the thing that um, was the most, uh, was the jumping off point was that this year marks the hundredth anniversary of the purchase of the woodwork from the ballroom in Alexandria uh, in Gatsby's Tavern by the Metropolitan Museum of Art and uh, that was in 1917 and The woodwork was then taken out of the largest space in Gadsby's Tavern and taken up to uh, New York at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and installed there in the American Wing which debuted in 1924 uh, and sits there still as a backdrop for uh, American furnishings and uh, primarily chairs chest over chests, and some paintings. So then in 1934, a series of, of folks from uh, the Alexandria area, the American Legion, uh, Daughters of the American Revolution, and other historians were gathered together and went up to New York, did specific uh, measurements from Gadsby's original woodwork, and then rebuilt the, uh, the woodwork and, and remade the um, the woodwork in the Tavern Museum itself in Alexandria back to its original plans so, uh, so the fact that the, um, that the original woodwork still exists uh, but lives in New York and the woodwork in Alexandria now is a reproduction of that Uh, kind of gave us a really interesting jumping off point to think about what's real, what's fake, what's remade, and how we really think about the reconstruction of history, and also who's saving history. Uh, And so we use those things as opportunities to think about who we could really be talking about and why it was saved in the first place. I think the reason that it was really saved and why this spot became a valuable place Um, two things. Uh, One, the fact that this was a really was about the was the largest room um, in Alexandria Uh, and so it had this grand space. Uh, The woodwork was beautiful but not exemplary Uh, but it was representational of important work and the fact that um, that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison uh, and the Marquis de Lafayette also uh, had all kind of come through this space. So it had this, uh, it was this marker for uh, for important people, uh, quote unquote, that have uh, had traversed through this space, had, uh, had danced in this room, had eaten in this room, and had p- potentially um, had important conversations in these spaces. Mm-hmm but we felt like there was more to talk about than that. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I just want to add to that that um, one of the interesting things about Gadsby's Tavern uh, itself is that it was the backdrop as a gathering site, a social space for many different peoples of the time to come together and share news of the day, share a drink, share a meal, uh, spend the night. Um, It was this kind of um, center Uh, for people traveling through as well as people within the city of Alexandria itself and therefore it was um, as a site a kind of backdrop and one of the things we noticed when we were looking at how the Metropolitan Museum uses the original woodwork of Gadsby's Tavern or as they call it the Alexandria Ballroom um, in the American wing is it's a backdrop for these fine federal furnishings, you know, this specific period of American history. And so um, that caused us as artists to think about the potential there for turning the Gadsby's Ballroom into a kind of backdrop for a kind of inverse of some of these famous peoples like George Washington and you know all the the folks that Stuart mentioned um, that very much did spend their time there that we could then invert that with the everyday peoples of today people that live in Alexandria that are connected to it either genealogically or because they're members of these organizations that have had a a stake in the place like the American Legion for a really long time. And that's how we came up with the title, Centennial of the Everyday, because 100 years ago the Met acquired this woodwork, and we were sort of thinking, well, what is the opposite of a kind of, kind of monumentality of you know the Founding Fathers and things like this? And that's how we arrived at this kind of mashup of um, how, how can we take the stories of quote-unquote everyday peoples and turn them into subject matter that um, sort of upends our expectations and the notions of what we both preserve and celebrate from American history.
0: So one thing I really appreciated about the exhibit is how you've taken these moments in the historical archive that are sometimes rendered absent because they're infrastructure. People don't even think about this labor or these other people existing. And the way that you've taken the historical museum and attempted to insert things that sort of disorient or disassociate or make familiar this history that often isn't covered. So if you could kind of describe for the listener what these moments and objects, what are these moments in the existing exhibit? How did you insert your work?
1: Mm -hmm. I would probably Two of my favorite things that are pretty easy to describe. Uh, One is the vessel uh, called Centennial of the Everyday that uh, we worked with, we collaborated with uh, two ceramicists at MICA, the school where we teach, and they made uh, these pretty accurate 19th century soda-fired stoneware vessels for us to incorporate in the exhibit. And they built them especially so we could incorporate video into them, some of them. And um, one of the video pieces that we have is of a uh, coconut sherd from the Alexandria Archaeology Lab, and um, it was an object that when we found it, when we were interviewing the archaeology staff um, in Alexandria, we found we thought that was a really poetic example of an object from the 18th century that was concurrent with the time period that's presented at the museum and represents not only the kind of um, Uh, port city identity of Alexandria and the fact that ships were coming and going from multiple places, particularly from the Caribbean and coming up to the mid-Atlantic. And that it also represented other kinds of peoples that typically aren't discussed from Mm the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, particularly thinking about a coconut as a kind of representation of uh, peoples from, you know, tropical spaces, which aren't necessarily the spaces of the mid-Atlantic, right? Um, And also kind of... uh, is a direct example of um, the presence of people of color, black people, uh, enslaved
2: peoples um, in this space. And and specifically the, you know, the mid-Atlantic slave trade and the, um, and then also like asking people to say, huh, what would a coconut be doing? uh, What would a 240 year old coconut shirt be doing in the Alexandria archeological files? And to and to really have people think about uh, about who who was here, and what what those people were doing, mm-hmm. and what roles different people played in uh, the making of our country, and um, and what what mm-hmm. evidence is left.
0: What process did you use in doing the historical work and the archival work? What was your research method to have all of these pieces? So you have the coconut shell represented on video and this other vessel. Mm -hmm. You have numerous chairs. You have representations of people connected genealogically through both the Gatsbys as well as enslaved peoples Mm -hmm. and, like you said, these organizations. What was your process of putting all of this together and then inserting these objects that call attention to what's not there? Mm -hmm. How did you think about this, and then what did you actually do?
1: Um, Well, I think one of the things that your listeners may want to know is uh, if they haven't been to Gadsby's. Tavern Museum. The first floor, um, this kind of visual display to it that appears as if there was a meal in progress and someone has or many people have left and we're just there as a visitor to kind of view Um, this suspended action. Um, The second floor of the museum, which includes the assembly room and the ballroom and the passageway and the east bedchamber, which are all open to the public, uh, other than the east bedchamber there's not a lot of furniture or things like that within the museum so we really saw that and originally as part of our process as a way to expand on these ideas connecting it to the Met Museum and how they present furniture there. You know our first original idea was like wouldn't it be great if we had chairs, too, and then we could put them in the Gatsby's Tavern Museum? And we just kept building on that, and it was sort of like, well, whose chairs? Well, the chairs of people that maybe aren't there all the time, but somehow are there because of their connection to that space. Like I said, either genealogically or because of the organizations they're involved with. And so, I mean, the process of being an artist and thinking through this, especially over the many months, we've been doing it is w- it's it's more like it's it, it on the one hand it's like we're sitting there kind of ad-libbing and like you know we're kind of playing um a, a kind of improv comedy with one another like wouldn't it be wouldn't amazing it be, if <laughs> if this happened and
2: then wouldn't it be amazing if we could find these people uh like find someone from this uh from the daughters of the american revolution find someone from the american legion Find, Find someone, someone who's, who's a, descendant. a descendant. Find someone who's a descendant of an enslaved person who was um, was enslaved to the Gatsby's, uh and then convince them to give us one of their pieces of furniture, and 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 talk to us, uh, and and per, and create a relationship with them uh, to then convince them that they should be part of our project. Wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. And my God we did it, yeah we I mean did like do that. I can't <laughs> believe you know, like I still find it kind of um amazing that that seven people all varied, all amazing mm. uh, beautiful, interesting, diverse um people entrusted their stories to us, entrusted their furnishings to us, and I think that was a really we had to be very very careful with that with that trust and careful with that information and they were very giving of of what they provided us but i think to work with um with so many stories i think that there still was a lot that um you know that i think to do it again i think that there's probably ways that um, that we could have been better at making sure that you know that we were um, doing uh, the right things for everyone but I think we did as much um, to honor each person and I think that the stories that we were able to tell and the ways we were able to create sculptures based specifically on each person, um, Within uh, within the ballroom, um, is uh, astounding that uh, that we were able to do that, and that each person gave us so much of of their lives to create uh, not just not just uh, an art installation, but I think something bigger than that. The the installation of the seven
1: chairs in the ballroom are based on specific people, so the process that Stuart's been describing of interviewing them and having building this kind of trust, I think was one that for us, even though we collaborate all the time in the classroom, uh, with our students, with other artists, when we make exhibits, um, with our subject matter, that typically isn't living, breathing human beings, that we really had to try out a new way of being artists over this past year. So the process was one where, when we began, we didn't really know what the work would look like or how it would come to be. And it was only by the kind of beautiful magic of the people that we happened to find that we just got along with so well that that work grew into what it is. And I think. Um, you know, the other ways in which the, um, the exhibit, which is not necessarily part of what's in the ballroom, but what's spread throughout the rest of the museum, you know, the East Bed Chamber has um, stoneware and a textile installation on the historic bed. We've got historic um, stoneware forms throughout the rest of the museum. There's another chair we've created elsewhere in the museum. There's also these small interventions on the first floor of um Uh, upholstered chairs belonging to the museum, more stoneware, uh, a wooden spoon that's been carved and an embroidered napkin in the private dining room, and all those things are things that I think in some ways Stuart and I were more comfortable kind of working with that because it wasn't necessarily the interviewing people, it was more like looking at things like the visual record of how women are represented in let's say the Met Museum's collection. Mm -hmm.
0: I had a really my strong reaction to it yesterday was well initially my initial strong reaction i had many but i'm a strong reaction person so um i like that yeah (laughs) is that i was in one floor and i was trying to look at one of the vessels and the way they're positioned I I think it's the one with a quote from one of the people, um, one mm-hmm. of the women you worked with, the mm-hmm. genealogist, mm-hmm. and she says, if people can't say it in a tweet, they don't say it at all. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to read that vessel, and it forced me to get down on my hands and knees in the museum, and like I'm on the floor in a museum, and maybe I'm just the type of person who will immediately just get on <laughs> my hands and knees in a museum without question. But while I was down there, I had that moment of feeling like, oh, is it inappropriate for me to be on the floor? Mm-hmm. And then I thought, the next thing I thought was, so many women have been on their hands and knees in this museum scrubbing this floor, mm-hmm. not a, before it was a museum, but this space is a boarding house, that it. I had the moment where it forced me to do the thing that it should force me to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's not so much a question, But did y'all think about that, of how the installation makes people feel that space in the way that they don't or
2: shouldn't? I think that the vessels certainly do um, uh, do some of that. Um, It's making people kind of look into things or look down at things and it's making people feel a little uncomfortable. We have one vessel that has a quote from, uh, from the tomb from the, um, from the female stranger. She was a woman who uh, had died at Gatsby's in, uh, in 1816, and uh, has this large, uh, uh, tableau tomb. Uh, no one knows who she is. Uh, there are lots of people who who posit who she is. She was um, she came under under cloak of night uh, with a gentleman from um, from the islands um, in uh, in the Caribbean, and so it's possible um, that she was. It's possible that she was enslaved. It's possible that she was um, was a woman of wealth. It's po- like there's all different. Um, different sort of ideas that people have about who she is. She may have been um, the daughter of someone uh, that uh, that people didn't want to have married or something and she came and was ill and was stayed at Gadsby's for uh, several weeks uh, whereupon she died. No one was allowed to see her face um, and she was uh, she was not known and it was at that time um apparently uh the gentleman was was very much in um in love with this woman and had uh, had this huge tomb um made for her and it says to a female stranger uh which is kind of curious uh and there's a little yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) that um that and very curious at a time when when almost nobody could go unnoticed um, in that way you know if you came in and and had money or had you know like secrets really didn't stay secret very long especially in a place um, where information was being passed around there were over uh, i think over 20 newspapers a day um, were at were at gadsby's at any given time and at a time when um, you know when news was was really really treasured um, and people met there to have conversations to have business deals um, so for her to remain secret um, and you know, it's really surprising so um, we have the quote from uh, a small quote from uh, from her on Alexander Pope uh, from Alexander Pope um, on the vessel and inside um, we have an image of a, uh, of a small sort of slightly mourning um, woman and one of Lauren's friends. Uh, we have her recorded crying and initially we thought it would be kind of funny uh, and then after we heard her Uh, This recording, Lauren and I like stopped in our tracks and we actually started crying along with it. It was so absolutely moving, uh, this true, this true crying and tears. And we really thought about like just how deeply sad <laughs> like so much of not the... not the, you know that female stranger was, which I think is what people are equating us to having made this of, but all of the loss all of the things that we can't bring ourselves to talk about all of the all of the lives that we haven't remembered Uh, all of the people who have sort of traversed this space all of the lives that have gone missing all of the strangers not that one specifically but like that she's kind of this person that Uh, that in a way was remembered and that people are very concerned about knowing about, but all of the others that that are so easily forgotten.
1: According to the museum, uh, the visitors' reaction has been really strong to that—a weeping woman. Um, some people are very disturbed like by it, and worried. Wish we're very, yeah, very concerned and worried. And um, uh, some people have said they wish they'd been warned that there was a crying person in there. And um, other people, like you said, have reacted. Um, you know, really, I I don't know if positively is the right word, but just in terms of that kind of emotion that is triggered um, when you hear the sound of someone weeping, um, especially if it's an indeterminate weeping, you're not clear what the cause is, and it, you know, it does tap into those human emotions that we have when we witness in film or um, in other uh, contexts, someone crying, you know, that, that causes a kind of reaction within us and we were really interested in that kind of open space that that would create for our audience. You know, what museums strive to do is to tell a story, Mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, even if, if you think of the city as a kind of archive um, Old Town Alexandria attempts to tell a kind of story about what it was 200 years ago and its enduring presence as part of the kind of narrative of the formation of America, you know, the time when Alexandria was, if if not more important than equally important to Washington, D.C. So, like Stuart and I get it, we understand why a museum needs to present a kind of tight timeline, but you know, we're artists, so we're all about trying to complicate things. Like, the (laughs) fact that Gadsby had more than one property, you know, he owned the Indian Queen Hotel here in Baltimore uh, a little later than when he was in Alexandria, and that's where Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner. Like, you know, he was the kind of guy that was was getting his, he was was kind of around when there was a lot of stuff, really interesting stuff going on, Decatur House in D.C., which um, you know, is extant. It's just a block or two from the White House. It's the largest surviving urban slave quarters in Washington, D.C. It's an incredible space, and he lived there. I guess he lived there right before he died. So, you know, he is a kind of subject to us, it was too limiting to think of it as like, well, what was happening here for a 15-year period? You know, we, we like to complicate things, and that's why it was so wonderful working with real people who are connected in some way to the space, because they gave us permission just by being, by being just human Just
2: existing, just by <laughs> their us, lives.
1: Gave us permission yeah. to open up this um, story to be more, we think, more complex, and of course, perhaps more difficult for that person who is looking for that tight timeline. But um, as artistic subject matter, it's, it's a wide open field to play in, in terms of how it complicates, and we hope, um, challenges our understanding of this really tight narrative about what America was and is.
0: Right, because it, to me, it makes visible how everything kind of exists all at the same time, if that makes sense. Like everything's always existing at the same time in a certain kind of way and i was curious too um about one how did you get a historical site museum to even let you do this trust well, you know, the, I mean, that just show enormous trust on their part, oh, even if they were skeptical. And,
1: and, and big ups to the city of Alexandria for having the commitment and passion and belief that contemporary art can bring about a new way of thinking and looking at something. Um, you know, it really is uh, people like uh, Diane and Meredith who we're working with who have been supporting public art projects for a while and understand that if you bring artists into a space. And um, give them support, both financially and with research, that they will give you back something that shines a new light on a specific site. So, um, you know, a student art artist, and we've dedicated our lives to this. Of course, we believe and we're passionate about what, what uh, change can come, what positive change and uh, feelings of hope and understanding and sensitivity that art can bring into people's lives. Um, it perhaps may be seen as a radical thing to bring artists into an historic site in an effort to um, you know, temporarily change the ways in which people experience that site, but it's actually not that radical or avant-garde or even new. It's something that you know, we've done before as individual artists and also that um, many other sites have tried to do before. And in fact, artists are typically the ones who are game to do this kind of thing and mm-hmm. think differently about how to tell a story of a space so uh, and and, you know I I just want to say too I think Alexandria in some ways is a really special kind of city I mean we've noticed when we were doing research like in the 60s it was really like citizen activists that were were intent on preserving parts of historic Old Town that allowed these spaces to um, persist through the 21st century so you know we're just two people but really it was people like us who saw things we're in these sites, and um, work together to preserve them. and we're we're very thankful that they did that because it has allowed Alexandria to be what it is today. One of our collaborators, Charma Cargo baugh is a well-known genealogist, um, particularly for African Americans and a historian of black life in Alexandria. And she um, was one of our favorite collaborators to participate with, and she's had a huge hand in helping the city. Uh, uncover what was covered by a gas station for many decades was almost and is partly raised by the highway that goes right by it. Um, It's right there um, by Old Town Alexandria and it's a huge part of the story of how um, people of color uh, lived and died in Alexandria in the 19th century and so you know um, a city that understands that they have that and that's that that um, those memories and that history should be preserved and not only preserved but also like you know, vaulted up in some way through not, you know, the resources of bring a historian in, connecting people who are five and six generations removed who are alive today with the fact that their ancestors are buried there, um, you know, those are things that make culture what it is. And if we lose that, and I feel like here's an example of how you know, Alexander, when they get it right, right, um, are doing this kind of work. It's um, not unlike what a museum does with preserving history. So, and you know, also just to say, too, that Gatsby's, um, they've been an open, uh, they've been very open with wanting to work with us and help us, and, you know, as always, I would love for things to go smoother in terms of, like, finding certain things or getting connected to certain ways, but um, they've been very welcoming that this is a way for them to think differently about how their space can be interpreted to the public.
0: I think it does a good job of it's not... Sometimes where I think sites get that type of representation wrong is they make it so just additive. Like, here's this other thing, and now we've added our, put this in quotes, like, representation in. Right. It it makes it so that it never questions that there's this larger structure that, like, oh, we've added this one thing to it, mm-hmm. and now it rectifies mm-hmm. this. It's something um, Tara McPherson calls lenticular logic, mm-hmm. where... These types of stories are like lenticular Mm -hmm. postcards Mm -hmm. that you can never get the whole image at once. Mm -hmm. I think there's something through you guys being artists that you're able to kind of avoid that because you're not kind of beholden to like, quote unquote, like perfect historical accuracy. I mean, you do a really good job with it. Mm But well, it, yeah,
1: we, we feel unmoored or, or freed in a way to tell certain things, like we were saying about the stoneware or getting outside of that linear right. timeline. And it's not because we disrespect the hard and important work that a historian does in accuracy, but we all know that there's so much missing from the record that it's it's laughable to think that if we stuck only with what is confirmed factual data, we're missing so much of the story. Um, One of the things I really want to say that I feel like is uh, an important part of thinking about how the visual arts are a different strategy or um, perspective for thinking about history. I also think we have to acknowledge, I think it's really, we're really grateful that you would spend time with us as visual artists on what's essentially a not very visual experience or medium of the interview. Uh, I always get really frustrated like Terry Gross on Fresh Air or any of these programs or they'll interview a dancer, they'll interview a musician, an author, but the visual arts are often forgotten uh, when we we talk about like a kind of verbal relationship and explaining things and kind of extending that to potential audiences. And, um, you know, one of the things that we felt I think uh, very clear was that we could bring certain um, things about the history of material culture like stoneware or textiles or you know um, Stewart's medium is steel and sculpture and I'm a painter and installation artist and you know we were interested in how we could use the nonverbal things that are tactile things that represent objects from the past like a chair exploding into space or um, you know, uh, the many buildings of Gadsby's displayed into one fabric pattern upholstered onto a chair from one of our interviewees, Lex, that these are visual experiences that can tap into the things that um, people frequently learn about through text or reading, you know, listening to something. Um, and that, that, that was an actual way of knowing. So when we talk about like how do we know what we know and ways of knowing, that the, the visual is often, often undercounted in this way of learning and knowing things. And um, you know, I, I, I think sometimes it um, upsets or disturbs me that it's not more um, valued what we can know and learn about ourselves as human beings and about other human beings through the visual and the material.
0: Stead of gratitude to Stuart, Lauren, everyone at Gadsby's Tavern Museum, and Area 405 for hosting us. We hope that you visit Gadsby's Tavern Museum, where the exhibit will be on view until September. There are more details on our website about southpodcast.com. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajoa Danzo are my co-producers. Lindsey Baker is our marketing director. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to see pictures of Centennial of the Everyday, please visit our website under Learn. We're off next week, but don't worry, you can still hang out with us because we're having a meetup with our listeners at Lean Draft House in the West End on Friday, August 4th from 7.30 p.m. until they close. We'll be on the patio and we look forward to seeing you there.